You are listening to the Campus Beat Podcast. I'm your host, Dinah Jansen. Each Wednesday at 5 p.m. on CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, I welcome a new guest from Queen's University to discuss news, issues, upcoming events, initiatives, and services for the benefit of Queen's students, faculty, staff, and alumni. Thanks for tuning in to this podcast, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Good afternoon, everyone. It is now 5 o'clock here at CFRC 101.9 FM, and you are listening to Campus Beat. And I have the great pleasure of welcoming Mr. Corey Pash, a PhD candidate here at Queen's University in Political Studies. Welcome to CFRC and Campus Beat today. Thanks for having me. I'm. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. And uh, we're going to be talking quite a lot with Corey this afternoon about uh, issues related to uh, disaster relief, uh, disasters themselves, and in particular, because it's timely, Hurricane Dorian, which is, well, by the time this airs, maybe it'll be hanging around in Atlantic Canada? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's the projections anyways. Uh, but we'll certainly know more about the the impacts that it's had both on the eastern seaboard of the United States and also in the Bahamas. All right. Okay. So before getting into all of this, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the research you're in fact doing here in political studies at Queen's? Yeah. So I'm a PhD candidate in political studies. Uh, My dissertation research centers around disasters and and politics. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm, I'm really interested in the way in which the governance of disasters has been changing. So We've been seeing ongoing shift and evolution in how a variety of different actors in the contemporary global political economy are trying to address disasters. And this ties into a number of different processes that are ongoing, most prominently being climate change and the intensification of events like hurricanes and um, typhoons and other uh, weather-related hazards, but also just in terms of ongoing development. You know, we have you know, more development going on in a variety of different hazard-prone areas. Mm -hmm. And that means that vulnerability is increasing. More people are exposed to events like Dorian. And that creates large questions for states, private firms, NGOs, other non-state actors, in terms of how they are going to deal with their their exposure to catastrophic risk. So that's what I study. Mm -hmm. Uh, And specifically, I study um, the emergence of a new hybrid finance insurance instrument. And I'll unpack all of this. I'm happy to do so. (laughs) Um, It's generally where I have to start off when I have conversations about my research. But uh, known as an insurance-linked security. And the most well-known insurance-linked security is a catastrophe bond or a cat bond. And these are, these are instruments that have kind of come about in the mid-1990s and have um, kind of changed um, and revolutionized the reinsurance and insurance sector, but have expanded now. And you see programs like the National Flood Insurance Program, the United States massive program overseen by FEMA that provides subsidized flood insurance to U.S. homeowners mm-hmm. that came out of the 1960s, ad- adopting and sponsoring, creating their own catastrophe bonds as a, as a new form of insurance, but also it's a, it's a, as I said, it's a, it's also a financial instrument. So it's a, it's also a bond. So it's, it's a form of investment. So, so is this something that people can just buy like a savings bond? No. So generally those that are um, involved in this market are institutional investors, large investors, massive amounts of capital. And they are the ones that are, that are involved in the providing the capital for 
for the insurance side of the bond. Mm-hmm. But yeah, um, I'm happy to, to talk a little bit about that right now. Uh, if yeah, you'd please like. do. What, so, so what are, you mentioned uh, something called uh, linked secure, insurance linked securities. And of course, these cat bonds are catastrophe bonds. What yeah. are those? So an insurance linked security is essentially just a financial instrument that is tied to, that has an, in, that is tied to the insurance sector in some way. Mm-hmm. There's uh, collateralized reinsurance where investors say, yeah, I will provide, um, you know, the insurance company will give X amount of percent back on this, on this capital that I'm providing you. It's going to be set aside in this um, bank account for simplicity's sake. You're, the insurance company pays a premium every year to that investor mm-hmm. for their capital. And that, that money is locked up tight there. If there's an event, that money is, is provided to the insurer to help offset losses. That's okay. so that's one form of insurance linked security. There's also, you know, sidecars there's a, there's a lot of uh, financialese like financial lingo that goes into, you know, how we understand these how these instruments work. Catastrophe bond is the I'd say the most dynamic. It, it's seen the most growth mm-hmm. um, uh, in the sector. And the way that a catastrophe bond works is an insurer uh, sets up a special purpose vehicle, uh, a, a unique legal entity generally um, domiciled in a tax haven mm-hmm. uh, like Bermuda. And the <laughs> irony is not lost on me in terms of the fact that Bermuda is actually a central hub for the insurance linked security catastrophe bond sector, but is also exposed, <laughs> you know, is, is one of the frontline communities that is exposed to climate change and, and, uh, and disasters. Yeah. Um, but essentially these, the, and that SPV orchestrates the, the, the creation of the bond. So for example, the, an insurance company might be looking for X amount of reinsurance coverage that protects them against some of their exposure because they have a bunch of policies against, um, wind or, storm surge or what have you. Mm-hmm. And so they're looking for X percent of millions of dollars in coverage that, that they use to protect themselves. And the SPV um, essentially relies on, there's a variety of different actors that, that come together to create these the, a catastrophe bonds. So there's the, the, the special purpose vehicle that acts as the kind of central organizing entity mm-hmm. that's separate from the sponsoring insurer that's actually directing this SPV to create the the bond. There's also um, special scientific organizations, companies, firms that uh, produce uh, a variety of different models of the risk that they're trying to address. So if they're trying, if the insurance company is seeking to launch a bond that protects against hurricane risk, that scientific modeling agency, that's what they are, scientific modeling agencies, will create, a variety of different um, scenarios. Like I'm talking like hundreds or thousands of of scenarios to try and calculate the the chance of that particular risk that they're protecting themselves against. Against because and that and that information is then used to set the targets or triggers of the bond. Mm-hmm. So the bond necessarily requires certain thresholds to be um, to be reached. So in the in the event of some of a hurricane like Dorian, it would be based on wind speed, um, storm surge. That's all measured, but that as those those markers or targets were already all pre set by that scientific firm in the bond negotiations. So they set they say we're launching this bond. It has a it has a trigger condition of you know uh, this wind speed, uh, a Cat five hurricane. 
that comes within this within this geographical area delineated by however they delineate it. We are offering this number of uh, shares at this this um, return rate. That's going to your your coupon payment on the bond, and essentially they go to market and investors. So institutional investors like pension funds, dedicated cat bond hedge funds will buy into that and then that that money is taken taken by the SPV set in escrow accounts usually invested in very secure forms of capital like T-bills or, or something like that mm-hmm. and the bond covers a certain period of time so it's generally a three-year period is the industry standard although there's been experimentation over you know a variety of different time frames and so then that's all set in place and then over the three-year period, if there is no event that meets those predetermined trigger conditions, then the sponsor, that insurance company, pays the investors that rate of return over that three-year period. And at the end of that three-year period, the SPV liquidates the escrow accounts and returns the investment to those investors. With some interest involved, I assume? Well, yeah. So they yeah. pay that interest rate. The coupon rate is generally paid every every year. Okay. Yeah. And then, right. and And so essentially... It, it in that instance when there is no event that meets those the triggering conditions for the bond it acts as an as a bond as okay. just an investment vehicle for those investors okay so there's but, so this is really interesting right behind the scenes there's a lot of business going on yeah absolutely yeah, and I don't think and I'm happy to get into that as well um, there's actually um, a phenomenon known as live cat, cat trading oh, so wow. with Dorian actually there were investors who were uh, had positions on that on bonds that were exposed to it, including bonds that protected bah- the um, the Bahamas, trading, trying to either get in on the risk because they didn't believe that it was going to be as bad as the forecasts were, and they could buy in on that coup on that bond p- interest payment for a cheaper price, mm-hmm. or trying to get off that risk and saying, "I believe that this is going to be bad. I don't want my my capital to be." I don't want the bond to default. I don't want to lose my cat, my my investment principal, and so I want off this risk. Mm-hmm. And so that gets into the other side of the cat bond, which is the insurance side. So in the event of that three in that during that three year period, just to go back to to that explanation, if there is an event that meets those predefined triggers in the bond contract, then what happens is the SPV liquidates those escrow accounts. And instead of transferring it to the investors, it transfers it to the sponsor, to that private insurer, okay. or in the case of um, the Bahamas and other other states, um, they transfer it to the government agency that sponsored the bond, and then that money is used as part of the relief efforts. So that's how there. Are, that's why or how an insurance and security and a catastrophe bond in particular is both a form of insurance and a form of of um, financial investment. So they're hybrid instruments that try and bridge this gap. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're, they're essentially, um, they, they've, they've come into prominence since, since the mid-1990s. They really came, there was some experimentation prior to that to try and get, you know, weather, weather-based derivatives and such. Um, but they've really with, particularly with uh, Hurricane Andrew in 1992 mm-hmm. and then um, increasing exposure levels. And it's interesting, it, it kind of matches up to the increasing intensification that we've seen from from climate change mm-hmm. and weather-based hazards. Um, we've seen a, a, a proliferation of these of these instruments. Mm-hmm. And so it started off with, with insurers. And I should say that all of this, 
ties into, I've mentioned the term reinsurance several times, and I just wanted to, to mention that reinsurance is essentially insurance for insurers. So insurers have a, a bunch of exposures because they sell a, a large amount of policies to homeowners for wind or flood risk or what have you. And so they, they need to offset that exposure and they do that by selling it to to buy, by buying, essentially buying their own insurance from companies that specialize specifically in that. And that date back to the 19th century where you had these massive conflagra- conflagrations that were burning up cities. Mm-hmm. And out of that, you had places like, Mu- like you had companies like Munich Reinsurance, uh, Swiss Reinsurance come about that said, we can't have, we have these, we have these massive fires in these cities that are decimating entire insurance industries. The entire insurance industry is going bankrupt. Because they have to keep paying out. So you have out. insurance yeah. company, yeah, exactly. So you have insurance company after insurance company after insurance company folding. And so the way to mitigate that is to spread that risk exposure even further to another tier uh, and that has been the traditional reinsurance company that has a pool of capital that buys risk exposure to from a variety of different insurers around the globe. They're actually some of the first global firms that came into existence hmm. uh, historically because their business model, model is predicated on the spread of catastrophic, massive catastrophic tail risk globally. And so one of the things about um, insurance and securities and, and reinsurance, they're Insurance securities are also known as alternative reinsurance to okay. differentiate them from traditional reinsurance, which is the capital, those those firms that have existed since the 19th century that have been operating in this, in this space. Okay. And so when we have events like Hurricane Katrina, $30 billion storms, the capital of traditional reinsurers is sitting right now around $500 billion to $600 billion. We've actually reached a point, thanks to climate change and development, as I was saying to initially, uh, speaking to initially, the where vulnerability has increased to such a, an extent that re- we've reached a point where the ability of the traditional firms that deal with these risks can't act, are actually very concerned about their exposure. And so the solution was, well, what, ha- who, where can we find even larger pools of capital? Well, that's the global capital markets. Okay. There we're talking about, you know, with Hurricane Irma last year, they were predicting if it hit Miami, it would be a $100 billion storm. Wow. Well, a $100 billion loss on the global capital markets is, you know, that occurs regularly. Mm-hmm. That's not outside of the day-to-day. Mm-hmm. And so while a $100 billion loss is a massive problem for a reinsurance sector that has maybe $500 billion, $600 billion worth of capital pooled together total right it's not the same at uh at the global scale at the global scale and so that's been this that's where some of the push for that that has come from. okay so wow there's this is really fascinating stuff and i'm just learning so much from you thank you very much and i think that our listeners are too uh these are things that we don't necessarily think about when we uh look at hurricanes such as dorian right uh, making its way up the uh eastern seaboard right now um and speaking of that too, that particular hurricane, as of today, I understand it's uh, 
I, I, I'm guessing around Georgia or uh, Upper yeah. Florida or something mm-hmm. like that. What's happening with the storm and what's its impact been so far? Like on not uh, not only uh, people. Like I, I understand the Bahamas has been severely hit. Maybe yeah. you want to expand on some of that that you're aware of too. But then uh, what the impact has been so far on some of the insurance companies that you're talking about? Yeah. So you know, I just want to position myself a little bit before getting into that. You know, I'm. You know, I'm a Canadian academic. I'm, I have European uh, descent, and so, you know, I've never been to the Bahamas. I don't have any family there, um, and I just want to kind of position myself before I, I start speaking to that because I'm aware of of many excellent, excellent pieces that are available. There was just one in the New York Times today that that is by an academic who's from the Bahamas that speaks to those to those impacts from a very proximate position. But mm-hmm. in terms of my own understanding of of Dorian's impacts. The Red Cross estimates that something like 45% of homes on the on the islands... Like Grand Bahama. Grand Bahama, and um, there's one other, Aduma or Adoma, I, I don't know. Well, oh, there are like 400 yes, islands yes, in yes. there. So anyway, yeah. so, so, so they're estimating that there were, there were losses of about 45% of homes, something like some 13,000 houses. Wow. Um, the death toll right now today is 30 individuals, but disaster death tolls are both notoriously difficult to determine and are also highly politicized. Uh, why uh, so? Why are they highly politicized? And why are they hard to determine? Well, because of just the, the, the well, if you, if you go and look at certain events, you'll see uh, a variety of different uh, estimates from a variety of different sources. Such as Puerto Rico and Maria. Yeah. So, okay. so for example, you know, you had... You have uh, government. Um, you have government estimates. You have estimates from um, NGOs and other non-state actors like um, the Red Cross, and they're and they're difficult to to nail down because of the the kind of disruptive aspects of it of a of a of a Category Five hurricane, for mm-hmm. example. There's also a political aspect to that um, in the sense that disaster death holes are. People play politics with it all the time. Trump is just the latest iteration of that, mm. um, as odious as he is. But it has been known in the past to have occurred to both to amplify the death toll, uh, and I'm talking about uh, states that have suffered the event, amplify the death toll in order to gen- try and generate more aid, mm-hmm. uh, humanitarian relief. But also it has been done to reduce the, the death toll. So the government of Thailand did that uh, with mudslides. Because they wanted to reduce the views out there in the media and from other states that they had suffered a massive catastrophe. And and death tolls essentially speak to their inability to protect their own citizenry. And so it becomes a question of, do we go with a lower figure? In In that case, they did in order to make themselves to distance themselves from other developing states or to not see as not seem as vulnerable to those particular events. So because by doing so they would so, have that infrastructure right. and so for sturdy exa- buildings. Well, and that they are, you know, they are developed enough, they are wealthy enough, they are um, they don't suffer the types of massive uh, losses of life that other states may mm-hmm. that would be considered part of the developing world or the global south or however you want to okay. determine it. So there's all of this politics that go around it. You know, um, that's why Trump, when with Hurricane Maria, he was touting this, the, the figure, I believe it was 16 deaths. Oh, yes. I right? So 16 deaths, it was all, it, it, it all becomes a, 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 
a political game around the number of deaths because it makes them see his administration and FEMA that are that are under his direction that he is directly responsible for ultimately seem more competent seem to have been able to handle the situation even though the situation on the ground was was not was was being mismanaged completely although local communities and individuals don't need exterior help to come in in the aftermath of of Maria um, you know individual communities are able to a lot of that um, immediately immediate relief and responses can be done through community organizing and was done in that in that case. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's and and then there was the the report um, later that year or the next the following the spring. The NGO report about that about the deaths of the 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 new estimates on the deaths from Maria, which was something like uh, uh, five thousand uh, yeah. people or, or so, something around <laughs> that, and uh, that's went set. That's what set Trump off on the on on another t- Twitter tirade mm-hmm. uh, because again it, it speaks to that incompetence. You also see that that mirrored in terms of the kind of the messaging that comes at, that was coming out of FEMA in response to Maria. Mm-hmm. In that you know it, if you look at it, it's all numbers based. It's this many emergency personnel, this many um, you know tons of food, this amount of you know this many aid packages that include this, mm-hmm. uh, th- these supplies, or the number of paper towel rolls that Trump yeah, is throwing. Right, yes, <laughs> right. Yeah, oh my God, that was yeah. awful. Yeah, it really was. But th- but it's but again, it's about con- it. Unfortunately, becomes about controlling that that political narrative and mm-hmm. not so much about you know what the needs of that affected community are, mm-hmm. and it's dissociated from larger conversations about why we're seeing an increase in vulnerability to these events. Okay. Now, with that in mind, then, was just get, getting back with what happened with uh, in the wake of Maria, uh, but also even just recently, like in the last week, Trump said that he'd never even heard of a Cat 5 hurricane before, although there have been four Category 5 hurricanes since he's taken office. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in 2017, he actually said, I've never heard of a Category 5 hurricane before. He said this twice, at least, yes. if not more. Uh, and then just, uh, as you know, I think it was yesterday, uh, the the fun maps with the sh- prompted Sharpie gate. Yes. <laughs> with yeah. the drawing of a, right. a new line over Alabama that... You know, scientists refuted. <laughs> right. Yes. Um, he was yeah. corrected by the National Weather Service almost immediately. Exactly. Um, but while we can go on and on about him, I do wonder what you think his particular statements uh, actually suggest about administrative preparedness for disasters such as this. If if you have somebody who's leading the United States who regularly says he's never heard of a category five hurricane before what does that what does that suggest right so i mean part of it is the fact that you know i I was speaking to the increase increasing exposure and vulnerability fema as a as an agency is especially in 2017 when we had um harvey irma maria we had the massive wildfires in california in california and that's just that's three hurricanes and the california wildfires we're not talking about uh you know riverine flooding we're not talking about overland flood we're not talking about landslides earthquakes which if we, we want to talk about more about po- po- the political aspects of that Fracking has increased earthquakes, and now you have insurance companies and the production of cat bonds and ILS to address earthquakes in states like Oklahoma 
that didn't have earthquakes or experienced earthquakes prior to the expansion of fracking and LNG in the U.S. <laughs> wow. that now require that now are experiencing earthquakes and that prom- that provokes a response from the insurance and financial sector. So part of what I look at in terms of my re- my research is how those those processes reinforce the the, the the contemporary status quo and 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 actually act as a bit of an echo chamber. But just to go back to to FEMA for a bit, because I want I will come back to mm-hmm. to the kind of integration of of insurance and securities uh, and the financialization and securitization of catastrophic risk in in the United States, particularly with the National Flood Insurance Program, but also now with the government sponsored enterprises like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, who are mm. exposed, who are the you know, if you remember from do they still exist? They anymore? do. They do still exist. They are. They are. Here's I an interesting they went thing. Down in a So here's an interesting thing. They are required if you if you if you receive a government spo- sponsored mortgage loan from them, you as a you are required as a homeowner to purchase flood insurance. But if you live in say Oklahoma or California, part of my research is in California, um, you're not required to purchase earthquake insurance coverage so that means that those in california yes there's a giant fault line yes 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 there's yeah, a whole movie about it starring the rock yeah and i mean despite the <laughs> despite the proliferation of disaster films which, um, which i bet you love ca- uh, yeah, well i mean they're of dubious quality but <laughs> I, I like more i, I mean we, we can get into that but yes um i i do enjoy uh, enjoy them you're not reco- so there's exposure there to those to those to those uh, to the GSEs, yeah, and that's being dealt with in particular ways, including create the the creation of cap bonds and ILS to address that. But in terms of overall uh, administrative preparedness, FEMA was is stretched very very thin, and because it was it was moved from its own agency into the Department of Homeland Security in the aftermath of of September 11th, mm-hmm. another political decision. It is subject to things like the recent reallocation of budgetary monies in DHS from FEMA to pay for Trump's border wall. So that was, I believe, yesterday or the day before, it was $255 million was reallocated from FEMA budgets to uh, help pay for, I believe, the housing of immigrants uh, for the the crisis on the border. So, Meanwhile, deta- so detained individuals. Right, yes, yeah. exactly. So so that's part and parcel of that kind of political nexus that surrounds disaster events. Um, FEMA was actually stretched so thin, that's one of the reasons why it took them a while to get agents to Puerto Rico, mm-hmm. because they were dealing with a variety of other disaster events in the United States. And so as an agency... And in terms of administrative preparedness, it's a, in, in my opinion, it's 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 a bit of a mess, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and it does, and it speaks to the priorities of an administration that can't square the circle between receiving or having deep ties to the fossil fuel industry and other industries that are responsible for the increasing exposure to these hazards, and the existence of climate change. So there, mm-hmm. there, there. You know, there's a reason why Trump argues that climate change is a is a Chinese hoax, and then 
is worried about uh, hurricanes and so then argues that, oh, well, maybe we should just fire nukes at them. You know, that was another one that was in the news recently. <laughs> why can't we Why can't we nuke hurricanes? Which has uh, uh, been under discussion before. And yes. I think it was refuted, what, five decades ago? Right, right, like that. right. But that, I don't know. I don't know much about nuclear physics or yes. science, period. But I feel like if you just blast a, a, a nuclear weapon in the air, isn't that really, really bad in it's, terms of radiation? And stuff it's a like horrendous that? idea. Yeah. Um, and uh, NOAA in yes. the U.S. actually has on their website a section on why nuking hurricanes is a bad decision or bad policy choice. And I bet they're getting a lot of page hits right now. Well, yeah, and they and they have it as part of the kind of myths that surround yeah. um, uh, hurricanes. But to be charitable to Trump, and that's not something I, I enjoy doing. Does or, he need charity? Or, well, no, he doesn't. But to be to be intellectually charitable and um, it's not something that I enjoy doing. <laughs> no, but, but, but the point is, uh, yeah, the look on my face. Uh, the point is uh, that specific why can't we why can't we nuke them came out of if you look at the larger transcripts that were reported from that from those meetings came out of a how many hurricanes can the united states actually uh, sustain mm -hmm. and that from someone like trump that is actually a, a a concern that i share that that anyone that is you know seeing what's unfolding would agree with mm -hmm. that yes there is a question so for example with the bahamas right with dorian and the like so we have the relief the relief efforts underway there'll be um there'll be recovery and then the the, the general third phase is uh, reconstruction mm -hmm. but you're essentially just setting up the bowling pins again you are just rebuilding in a particular area that is in that is ground zero for another strike yeah it might not be it might not happen occur next year, but they will get hit again. Yeah. And with climate change, because of increasingly warm uh, ocean temperatures, that means that the hurricanes themselves have more energy. Mm -hmm. um, they also have more energy because the air is warmer, and so the that means warm air means more moisture in the air. And I'm yeah. not a meteorologist or an <laughs> atmospheric physicist, but my layman's understanding of all this and the reading that I've done from the kind of natural sciences perspective is that that is one that is the, this increasing intensification of these events so with climate change we're not seeing more hurricanes but we're seeing stronger hurricanes and the 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 other side of it is it's not just cl climate change doesn't just amplify the power of a uh, hurricane like dorian mm. it actually has negatively it also negatively impacts natural barriers that exist to these storms. So, for so, example, like, what, yeah, like in what? the case of Bahamas, barrier. a natural barrier to the intensity intensity of uh, of uh, of the of a hurricane that would make landfall is coral reefs. In fact, they reduce really. They reduce yes. They actually reduce uh, the 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 intensity. I've read figures of something like ninety seven percent. But climate change is also increasing the acidification of the ocean and killing coral reefs, which means those natural barriers are disappearing and being destroyed. Okay. So that natural barrier is erased at the same time as the intensity of the hurricane is being ramped up. On top of that, North America has a, um, has a, have, has natural wind barriers along the Eastern seaboard 
produced through wind shear, which climate change is affecting as well. There have been some studies that that argue that with climate change, the, that wind shear is being reduced. What is wind shear? Well, it's it's the vertical movement of air. It's it's wind that moves vertically, oh. and so that that impacts the the way that the hurricane comes in. It it can change the course of the hurricane. And it push can, it, it back can out. it can act as effect, effectively. My understanding is it acts as a buffer. And from the reports that I've read, with the with the weakening of that natural occurring wind shear, it changes the dynamics of, of that of those storms. Okay. Um, we also we we also um, have seen this occur through political decisions in the case of Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, with the creation of the Mississippi River Gulf Outlet, which was a economic project that was that was sponsored by the city that created a large channel to allow larger ships to access the the harbor there. Mm-hmm. But that was that channel was actually dredged by the US Army Corps of Engineers through natural mangrove swamps that have existed there since the city has been there. Yeah. And those swamps are again another natural barrier to hurricanes like Katrina that eventually hit the city. And they rely on a very specific ecology. There's a you know a, a very, there are specific salinities that it requires that those that those trees uh, grow in, and they act as a, a buffer on the winds and the storm surge. But with the with the dredging of that of that economic of that economic pro, of the canal for that economic project, it actually affected it changed the salinity of the of that of that area surrounding huh. New Orleans and actually led to a mass die off of die off of those mangroves. And so New Orleans actually that natural barrier was actually weakened against hurricanes like Katrina. Hmm. Also happened with the 2004 tsunami in, or sorry yeah Boxing Day tsunami with um with Sri Lanka. This yeah. this time for a pol- uh, for political decisions surrounding the conflict between the Sinhalese and the and the uh, Tamil and the Tamil, so essentially the there were night raids going on that were coming from mangrove swamps by the 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 LTTE, and so the Sinhalese destroyed those mangroves in order to prevent the cover and the night raid night raids from occurring further. But again, natural barrier to storm surge. Then we have the tsunami because of the the because of the conflict there. It's, it's changed the way in which that natural hazard plays out. And so these are, these are all concerns and considerations that generally we don't think about. And that's why I say, you know, we need to have a broader understanding and, and, and think about how it is that these choices that seem totally unrelated to or totally disconnected from events like Dorian or Katrina or the Boxing Day tsunami but in reality, how they are part and parcel of our of our relationship with with disaster events. All right. So, one thing you touched on it a little bit here and there in terms of like priorities, the question of priority, and we've talked a lot about uh, the broad strokes, if you will, of uh, political economy in terms of uh, how disasters are viewed and prepared for. Uh, but is there a political geography? in terms of relief is there is there when there's actually a disaster what does it look like in terms of how one community is rebuilt versus how another community might be rebuilt yeah so does uh, that make sense yeah absolutely and again like this is 
this is part of these these um, these political, economic, social dynamics that surround uh, these catastrophic events. So to riff off of uh, Naomi Klein's disaster capitalism a little bit, um, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you know, it's it disasters, and there's been a long tradition of this, even far far uh, prior to um, to Naomi Klein's work. Uh, you know, they're seen as um, an economic opportunity, right? An opportunity, not just a not just a crisis, but a moment of change, a moment of being able to uh, accomplish things socially or politically that were not previously possible. So, for example, in the case of Katrina in New Orleans, um, the conversion of the public school system to charter schools uh, that was done in the immediate aftermath of, the, of that event, because the unions there that were advocating against it, uh, those individuals weren't out marching. They were dealing with mm-hmm. their, you know, their home that was flooded, their family member that was that needs medical attention. They've been relocated to a different state, and they're now living in a, in a, in a, um, in a relief, in a relief camp. Mm-hmm. So these are all that. That's one example of of the of the changes that are are brought forward. In terms of my own my own work, um, just to go back to this type of the securitization mm-hmm. and the insurance and security side of it, it's really pushed as an opportunity for the need to provide to to essentially transfer these risks and move them move them to uh, global capital market investors. So there's kind of this perverse cycle that occurs where you have uh, global capital markets that are responsible for investment in fo- the fossil fuels industry, in, in the, the expression of the structure or the, the current, the contemporary, what we see when we look out at the contemporary global political economy. We have those those same actors and uh, forces that are producing, uh, helping to uh, produce uh, climate change through emissions and such, our energy-intensive uh, capitalist economy, but are also reaping benefits on the other side by being able to diversify their investment portfolios into insurance securities and catastrophe bonds. Mm-hmm. So there's a, you know, I'm, I come from it, you know, full disclosure, I come from it from a very kind of critical perspective, but, uh, and there's a lot of debate about it, but, you know, ultimately we're trying to grapple with a situation that's not sustainable. And ins- so insurance companies um, are, they're also on the front lines. They're they're the ones that are exposed. Um, we recently had Bank of Montreal announcing that they were going to be pulling out of uh, insuring uh, climate-related risks here in Canada. Really? And globally. Yeah, because they don't want the exposure. So wow. part of my, my, my dissertation research, I look at specifically the the crisis that ar- that ar- that arose in in Florida and in 1992 after Hurricane Andrew and in California after 1994 uh, and the Northridge earthquake and effectively what you had in both those states were insurance crises that threatened to spill into the greater economy mm-hmm. because and I'm not talking about local insurance companies to those states I'm talking about domestic large domestic US insurers said we realized that the California homeowners insurance policy uh, market is a lucrative market, but we don't like, after reflecting on the, the losses that we've received from the Northridge earthquake, we don't want to provide homeowners insurance to California anymore. So that's not just, oh, I can't get an earthquake policy. That's farmers doesn't want to sell 
homeowner's insurance. And then that becomes a, so is a bank going to give you a mortgage for uh, a home in California if you can't get homeowner's insurance? <laughs> no, they're not. So yeah. all of a sudden we go from insurance to to housing to the to the to the greater economy. Mm-hmm. So this and so there have been insurance securities, cat bonds, greater pools of capital, diversification of catastrophic risk. It's one way to try and address that. But it's problematic, especially when we when those same industries and insurers insure things like coal mines, right? So yeah. coal mine development isn't possible. Essentially, no economic activity is possible without insurance. Right. If you don't have insurance, it's not going to happen. You can't drive a because, car. You exactly. can't get a mortgage. Exactly. But yeah. you can't build a coal mine. You can't build an oil refinery. You can't yep. build uh, an LNG pa- uh, pipeline. Uh-huh. So, so insurance, if you think about it, and this isn't to just aggrandize my own research, but this is is fundamental to the way in which our economy operates. In fact, in the the industrial revolution was only possible with the advent of fire insurance, and fire insurance itself was an in- invention mm-hmm. <laughs> that came out of the insurance uh, the in- industrial revolution be- because after the sixteen sixty six fire, when you have these massive capital stocks that are being used for productive activity. If they are, if they can go up like that in the in 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 smoke, then there's no point in having the, the that concentration of of resources, mm-hmm. and so you need a way to 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 address that. Indeed, because before that, insurance only really covered you know ships crossing the ocean from you know shipwrecks. That's right. That's right. Or yeah. sinking. Yeah. yeah. So that I mean, the the history hmm. of insurance and reinsurance dates dates back to the 13th century. Yeah. Um, and the the willingness of bankers to underwrite their name on the ocean-going voyage. That's where underwriting comes from as a term. Yeah. Hey, I just learned something. (laughs) Another fun fact. Yeah, so they would literally uh, write their name under under the voyage, uh, on on the contract. They would write their name underneath. They would Mm -hmm. underwrite the voyage so Mm -hmm. that they – and they would have their name, the amount of insurance that they were willing to provide, and – their expected return okay on 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 the on that um, service yeah. on that investment and, but again we get to that to this point of we're we're reaching questions of well what happens when financial institutions like BMO are no longer willing to insure uh, or want want exposure to that to, to particular risks that are related to climate change okay how do we how do you address? So again, we fall. We, we continue to fall back to. Well, then I guess it's the state. It's the government that becomes the insurer of last resort. Right. Um, so I'm wondering at this point then, and we have a few minutes left in our conversation today. Uh, we've talked um, about insurance companies and their involvement in the climate change conversation. Are they? Are these insurance companies somehow involved in, you know, combating climate change in any capacity? What's happening there? Yeah, so there's, there's, it's interesting when you look at the the kind of distribution of insurers globally in in terms of specifically in terms of providing insurance to things like um, coal mines and mm-hmm. um, really heavy heavy carbon intensive uh, industries. There's a there's a division globally um, traditionally. Um, the insurers are, are traditionally split between Europe and North America. European insurers are far more have been far more progressive in terms of um, refusing to insure new fossil fuel 
projects, specifically coal. Mm-hmm. Um, and while U.S. insurers, unsurprisingly, I suppose, have been kind of dragging their heels, Chubb actually made uh, made some big news in the in the area of of insurance as it relates to um, carbon intensive industries. Chubb Chubb refused uh, to has has recently committed to not insuring new new coal new coal projects and that's 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 really progressive and great. Mm-hmm. So at the same time, you know, I said it's a it's kind of it's very problematic because you have you know, they're underwriting and their uh, property casualty especially for um, areas that are exposed to events like Dorian and, and other hurricanes are they're they're on the they're on the hook for that mm-hmm. financially, but at the same time they're making money off of insurance policies for for carbon intensive industries and so that's again part of this problem of squaring the circle you know, the trump campaign or the trump administration is also struggling with mm-hmm. in the sense that like you i suppose you turn to trying to nuke hurricanes when you can't ad- admit or acknowledge for political reasons that it's actually the donors that are funding you mm-hmm. their industries that are the reason why events like dorian are threatening alabama even though Dorian did not threaten Alabama, <laughs> you know, in the words of, in the language of Trump. But it's, it's, it, again, we see that in, with, with Chubb, we see it with, with um, fracking and liquid na- uh, natural gas production in, in Oklahoma, in Kentucky, you know, those, those same insurers are insuring, providing the insurance coverage for those, those projects, while at the same time, those projects increase their exposure to catastrophic events that okay. then they are also have to pay for. And that doesn't even get into um, the kind of theoretical perspectives that uh, come from a variety of different economists, including Joseph Schumpeter, who basically make the argument that disasters, and Alan Greenspan actually is a, is a, is a proponent of this as well, was a proponent when he was chair of the Fed, that disasters are, or that, sorry, not disasters, but disasters can be con- concluded that what Schumpeter would call creative destruction, mm-hmm. i.e. destruction that is required to occur in order for creation to occur, is intrinsic to the capitalist endeavor, mm-hmm. to capitalism as an economic system. Mm-hmm. And so what that means, if we extrapolate, is that we require events like fires, earthquakes, hurricanes to essentially wipe clean specific areas for further development, for redevelopment to occur, which creates a whole bunch of economic activity. And in fact, some of the data, when you look at it, uh, does demonstrate, you know, they talk about it as, they call it the Phoenix effect, where effective, where where post-disaster economic activity increases and, and actually changes the the growth curve. Mm-hmm. So, it, so I'm not an economist either, but um, anyways, the point is that uh, that's a that's a pro, a very problematic aspect of um, ca- catastrophes that we don't talk about. Uh, we talk about relief and recovery and reconstruction. We don't talk about which and and then we don't even talk about who sees the benefits of that. I've I have totally omitted in this conversation, which is again I apologize, but uh, the 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 gendered class ethnic ethnic uh, and race based aspects of of those processes mm-hmm. that that determine who sees money from relief efforts, who doesn't, why that is, who's who bears the 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 costs of these events versus others, it, and it and it and it reverberates through um, 
all through these these processes as they as they unfold in in the aftermath of an event. Wow, I think this is probably the most interdisciplinary conversation I've ever had. I think we've covered pretty much every every faculty of research in this space. Wow, you're just your your research sounds really fascinating, uh, and the breadth of knowledge uh, from various disciplines are definitely at play in your work. I have to ask, what do you find so compelling about the research? Why were you driven to it in the first place? Well, I mean, I think my academic journey has kind of been kind of captivated by disaster. And that's that's a bit of a joke. But, um, <laughs> you know, uh, when I was in my master's, the Haitian earthquake occurred. Um, I was captivated by that. You know, I was studying a variety of different theories about the the international relations and the global political economy. And then... I saw this as a microcosm of of uh, of uh, activity that that speaks to these larger theories that I was trying to grapple with as a as a master's student, and then you know with my with my PhD I came to Queens to work with um, the wonderful and brilliant Professor Suzanne Soderberg, who um, is a Canada Research Chair in Global Political Economy. I started off looking at humanitarian relief, um, but I stumbled across these new financial instruments um, through my readings that were known as catastrophe bonds, and that captivated my my attention because I saw the potential. I suppose it's it's a little weird to think about, but I saw the potential. I was like, well, what if these things actually go like really mainstream? So, and what are the consequences of that? So, mm-hmm. this is about transferring risk. Uh, pension funds are, are exposed to it. The European um, Insurance and Occupational Pension Authority, which was created in the aftermath of 2008 as a regulatory body um, to flag potential areas for global systemic risk, mm-hmm. has flagged multiple times insurance-linked securities and catastrophe bonds as a potential source for global systemic financial risk because they operate on the same, essentially the same model as mortgage-backed securities, okay. which is an originate-to-distribute model. So I I just, I, and of course, like, these are dramatic events that captivate our attention, and so I'm just kind of drawn to them. Um, perhaps maybe my, my, my uh, affection for kaiju movies as well, <laughs> <laughs> and Japanese culture, which is a society, that's really interesting as well, and I wish we had more time to talk about it, but, you know, the, the way in which cultures and societies have kind of integrated and understood disasters as well, so... You know, I talk about, I just referenced kaiju movies and the and Japanese culture in terms of their their um, relationship with um, catastrophic events. But if you look at the United States as a kind of a Puritan society and its Puritan roots, there's a lot of religious and cultural norms that are read into these events, both in terms of, um, and we see them pop up with with particular comments being made these events being seen as um, divine wrath or divine judgment, hmm. um, also playing into kind of uh, Protestant, Protestantism and uh, beliefs about um, productivity and uh, economic opportunity that, that come in the aftermath of these events. So I just find them fascinating moments of humanity that I want to engage with, but at the same time, incredibly alarming and disturbing and um you know it's it's an issue that 
I hope that my work in some way helps to provide a little bit of clarity or uh, directionality to where we can where we can potentially go as as a human as humans as and tr- and our relationship with the environment and trying to navigate the 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 kind of hazard hazard filled world that we're that we're going to have to deal with with the fact that we have what 415 parts per million carb mm-hmm. carbon in the atmosphere and it's and their their predictions are it's doubled like we failed on that front and so the worst case scenario is what's coming and what is coming is storms and my uh, storms and events that are going to make Dorian and Katrina look like birthday parties yeah and we are going to see the the types of uh, the types of migration and other consequences to how we we live in this world and and get along in this world and so for me it's it it is the seminal issue of our time and we need to and that's really what animates my work all right well thank you Corey Pash PhD candidate in political studies for this amazing conversation. I think we all learned a lot about what's going on behind the scenes, behind disaster, especially in the realm of uh, finance and insurance uh, that I don't think any of us really think about on a regular basis. But oh, wow, what if the insurance companies go down? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, Yeah. like (laughs) it's 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 part of it's it's part of this dissociation that we have with these events right so we see these events they occur and then they're over mm-hmm. but they're not over puerto rico hasn't recovered no um but, i, I but, think new orleans is still rebuilding yes absolutely yeah. and they're the, the, so the point is we for whatever reason and there's a lot of theorizing about why but we tend to kenneth hewitt in 1983 described it as a disaster archipelago that mm-hmm. each disaster event is essentially another island in the chain and that this chain is off of the mainland, which is our day-to-day relationship with the environment. But we don't, so we are able to kind of cognitively disassociate those those events after the cleanups occurred and the relief's been given and, hey, I donated to the Red Cross, so Bahamas will be okay or Puerto Rico will be okay or what have you, whichever affected community. But we don't ask those larger questions of, well, if the insurance companies do go down, what happened, how do we operate economically? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't have an answer to that. Oof. I don't I don't know. Well, maybe you're going to be the person building the model someday. <laughs> oh, God. Well, You'll be building the we'll model see. someday. <laughs> we'll You'll see. win that Nobel Prize. <laughs> no, no, no. I don't. <laughs> as my father would say, I don't need the door frames widened any further. So <laughs> let's, let's leave that talk alone. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, we've got to sign off now. But thank you once again, Corey Pash, PhD candidate in political studies. It's been a real pleasure to have you in the studio today uh, to share with us your knowledge of all of these uh, issues uh, that we sometimes just take for granted because we just see it as a uh, news blip. Yeah, and thanks for having me. I really, it was really a pleasure to be here and to to have the opportunity to, to talk more about my research. You're welcome anytime. All right, thank you for tuning into Campus Beat, and we'll see you next time.